Welcome to the Banner of Truth broadcast. This program is brought to you by the Free Reformed Churches of North America. Your host is Pastor Jack Schumann, pastor of the Emmanuel Free Reformed Church of Abbotsford, British Columbia. And now, here is Pastor Jack Schumann. We are continuing our series of sermons today on the book of Revelation, and the text for the sermon is taken from Revelation chapter 1, the second part of verse 5 and verse 6. And there, speaking of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the Apostle John writes these words, To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his holy word to our hearts. Dear friends, at the end of every worship service, many churches sing what's called a doxology. The word doxology is derived from two Greek words, the word doxa, meaning glory, and the word logos, meaning word. So literally, a doxology is a word or an utterance, in this case, a song of glory, a song of praise to God. The singing of a doxology is a most fitting way to end the public worship service. And that's because by the time we sing the doxology, we have just heard God speaking to us in his word. The mystery of the riches of his grace and gospel have been unfolded to us. And so what better way to conclude and to respond to what we have heard than by singing an exuberant song of praise to God. Well, the book of Revelation contains several doxologies. In fact, there are seven of them. And the first of these can be found in our text. In Revelation 1, the second part of verse 5 and verse 6, which we have just read together. Now, unlike most doxologies which focus on the triune God, this doxology focuses exclusively on Jesus Christ, which makes sense since Christ is the central focus of this book. It also comes on the heels of John's salutation in verses 4 and 5. Charles Spurgeon observes the following. He says that John had hardly begun to deliver his message to the seven churches when he felt that he must lift up his heart in a joyful doxology. The very mention of the name of the Lord Jesus, the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth fired his heart. He could not sit down coolly to write even what the Spirit of God dictated. He must rise. He must fall upon his knees. He must bless and magnify and adore the Lord Jesus. Well, with this in mind and God's help, let's consider the words of our text under the theme, John's Doxology to Christ. And we'll see that this doxology is, first of all, supremely fitting, and secondly, it is justly unending. John's doxology to Christ is supremely fitting, and I say that for two reasons. First of all, because in light of who he is, and who is Jesus Christ? Well, he's the only begotten Son of God. He is the second person of the Holy Trinity. He is co-equal, 
co-essential and co-eternal with the Father and the Holy Spirit. In addition to that, he is the Savior of sinners, who left the glories and the riches of heaven to come to this world, a world that hated him and despised him, that he assumed our flesh and blood, he became like us in every respect, yet without sin, he performed great and wondrous deeds, he suffered, he died, he rose again, and is coming again to judge the living and the dead. Now in light of all of who Christ is, he deserves to be praised. But without excluding any of these things, John draws our attention to something else in our text. You notice that in the previous verse, in verse 5, John uses three phrases to describe who Christ is. First of all, he says, he is the faithful witness. Now the Greek word here is the same word from which we get the English word martyr. A martyr is someone who witnesses about Christ to others around him, even at the cost of his or her life. Well, Jesus was the ultimate faithful witness. Throughout his entire earthly ministry, Christ faithfully witnessed, he faithfully proclaimed the truth of the word of God. He fully and faithfully proclaimed the word of his father. And in the end, like thousands of witnesses who came after him, he paid for this with his very life. And John knew this, and that's why he refers to him here as the faithful witness. Secondly, he calls him the firstborn from the dead. Now the word firstborn sometimes refers to the first in a line of offspring. And so by calling him the firstborn from the dead, John is saying that he is the first among all his people to rise from the dead. Because Christ rose from the dead, his people will one day rise from the dead as well. And what is more, although others were raised before him, you can think of Lazarus and the daughter of Jairus and the son of the widow of Nain, they were raised only to die again. But Christ was raised never to die again. And as such, he is the ultimate firstborn from the dead. Thirdly, John says he is the ruler of the kings of the earth. Now, kings are usually the most powerful person in the land. And as such, they don't have a ruler over them. They're at the top of the pyramid, we could say. But that's not true for Christ. He is the ruler of the kings of the earth. And that means there is no one greater than he. He has ultimate power, ultimate authority in heaven and on earth. All the rulers of the earth owe their allegiance and obedience to him. But even that is not all. John's doxology to Christ is fitting not only for who he is, but also for what he has done. And what has he done? Well, John mentions four things here. First of all, he says he loved us. Now, that's an amazing thought. We don't deserve to be loved. Because we're sinners. We sinned in Adam and we sin every single day. What we deserve is God's wrath and his condemnation. And yet John says he loved us. And he loved us from all eternity. Long before God created the heavens and the earth. He loved us. He loved us so much that he agreed in the covenant of redemption to suffer and die to pay the penalty for our sins. And he loves us still, even though we have sinned, and even though we continue to sin and rebel against him. He loved us, and as such, he is worthy, yes, most worthy to be praised. 
Secondly, John mentions here that he also washed us from our sins. Now here here we have the explanation for why he loves us. He loves us because he washed away our sins in his precious blood. The very thing that would cause him to hate us, he has done away with. And therefore, he loves us. Sin is like dirt. And we're, by nature, covered with it from head to toe. There's original sin. There's the sin nature we inherited from Adam. And there are also our actual sins, the sins that we commit every day in our thoughts, in our words, in our actions. And all of these sins make us filthy, unfit to stand before God. Now, when we get dirty, we need to wash. And it's no different for us spiritually. Because we're dirty, we must be washed. And this is precisely what Jesus does. He washes his people from their sins. Now you notice the word washed here. He didn't simply spray us off. He scrubbed us clean so that there's not a trace of sin left. Imagine spilling red wine or grape juice on a white rug or carpet. It doesn't matter how much you scrub, you'll always see the stain. But not when Christ washes away our sin. He washes us so entirely, so completely, so deeply, that not a trace of sin is left. And you notice too that he does something else. He does this himself. Believers do not wash themselves. They can't do that. Although many try. And they try to do this by doing good works or performing acts of religious devotion. For they think that by doing these things, they can somehow wash away their sins and earn themselves the favor of God. But that's impossible. Only Christ can wash away our sins. Because only His blood is a perfect blood. And how does He do this? He does this in His own blood, John says. The Greek preposition here indicates instrument he used his blood to wash us so we could translate it like this he washed us from our sins with his own blood now that seems kind of strange doesn't it on the surface we don't wash with blood we wash with water only water makes us clean but the only way to remove the filth of our sin is to be washed in blood in the blood of christ Now, the word blood here is a figure of speech referring to Christ's sacrificial death. In the Old Testament, when the people of Israel committed sin, they had to offer an animal sacrifice on the altar. And that, of course, involved the shedding of blood. And by this, they were reminded that sin deserves death. The person who sinned must die. More specifically, his blood had to be shed. Why? Because the penalty for sin is death. The Apostle Paul put it like this, the wages of sin is death. Why death? Because sin is no small minor, it's no small minor matter. When we sin, we sin against God. And as such, sin deserves the death penalty. You and I deserve to die because of our sins, not just physically, but also spiritually. We deserve to spend an everlasting eternity in hell. Here's the wonderful news, that God in his boundless grace and mercy 
allowed the people of Israel to sacrifice an animal instead of themselves. We call that a substitutionary atonement. Atonement of sin by way of a substitute. Now in the Old Testament, the substitute was an animal, a goat, a bull, a sheep, or a lamb. But all of these animals could not atone for sin in and of themselves. We need a greater sacrifice. We need more precious blood than that of an, of an animal. And so all these animals point us to and are ultimately fulfilled by Christ. He is the ultimate substitute for sin. By shedding his blood on the cross, Christ paid the penalty for the sins of all of his people and made them clean in the sight of God. Now that doesn't mean, of course, that we no longer sin. Of course not. We continue to sin and we'll continue to sin until the day we die. But when we are in Christ, God no longer sees our sin. He regards us as if we had never sinned and on that basis declares us not guilty and grants us entrance into everlasting life. And John knows this, and so he cites this as a reason to praise him. Thirdly, John says, Christ made us kings. Now, there's no greater honor and privilege than to become a king. Kings enjoy the best of everything. They eat the best food. They wear the finest clothing. They live in the most stately of palaces. They associate with the richest, most famous, and most powerful people in the world. What is true for kings and princes is also true for believers in Christ. For the believer in Christ is also a king. And as such, they too enjoy great privileges. No, they may not eat the best food. They may not wear the finest clothing. They may not live in the most stately of palaces and associate with the richest and most famous and most powerful people in the world. In fact, the exact opposite is often the case. But they still enjoy great privileges. They have the forgiveness of sins. They're clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. They have communion and peace with God. And one day they will live and reign with him forever. Believers are kings in Christ. You see, in what way are they kings? Well, think of what a king does. A king rules and conquers. And that such is the believer in Christ. This is the, this is the perfect description of the believer. The Puritan Matthew Henry writes this, and I quote, As kings, we govern our own spirits. We conquer Satan. We have power and prevail with God in prayer. And one day, we will judge the world. That's a king. Believers are kings in Christ. And nor is this something that is reserved only for the future. No, we are kings right now. The believer in Christ is a prophet and a priest and a king. And as such, we reign right now. Now, there's a sense, of course, in which we do not reign completely. Our three great enemies, Satan, the world, and our own sinful flesh, they're still very strong, and at times they even gain the upper hand over us. But the day is coming when we shall be victorious at last, and we shall sit with Christ in his throne to judge the living and the dead. And John knows this. He knows that Christ has made us kings, and as such, he is worthy to be praised. Fourthly, John says Christ made us priests. Now that's probably an allusion to Exodus 19 verse 6. There God says to the people of Israel, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now in the Old Testament, only the Levites could serve as priests. But God here 
envisions a time when the entire nation of Israel would serve as his priests. Now, when would that take place? Well, that would take place especially after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. At Pentecost, believers were anointed with the Holy Spirit as prophets, kings, and priests. Peter understood this. That's why in 1 Peter 2, verses 5 and 9, Peter writes, You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And in verse 9 he says, You're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a a, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Believers in Christ are priests. Now what do priests do? Well, first of all, they intercede for all men in prayer. And that's what believers do too, don't they? We pray. We pray for each other. We pray for our fellow men. We intercede for them before the throne of God. Priests also make sacrifices. Yes, every day the priests had to go to the temple, to the tabernacle, and they had to offer sacrifices to the Lord. And believers do the same thing. Except our sacrifices are not animals, but ourselves. So Paul says in Romans 12, verse 1, after explaining God's way of salvation, Paul writes these astounding words. He says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. The word therefore at the beginning of this verse is a connecting word, and so it connects what Paul has said previously to what he says in this verse. It's like he's saying, considering all that God has done for you in Christ, Therefore, in light of this, present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God. In the Old Testament, the sacrifices were dead sacrifices. They were dead animals. But Paul says, I want you to present your bodies a living sacrifice to God. You see, God no longer requires us to sacrifice animals. He wants us to sacrifice ourselves. Our sacrifices are our bodies. And that means we're called to live every moment of every day to the praise and glory of our God in our thoughts, in our words, and in our actions. And everything we do, everything we say, everything we think should be a living sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving to our God. And so believers are kings and priests. What is more, John adds, they are kings and priests to his God and Father. And the meaning is that Christ has made believers to serve as kings and priests in the service of his Father and to his glory. And so Christ did four things for his people. He loved us, he washed us from our sins in his precious blood, and he made us kings and he made us priests to the glory of God his Father. What wonderful blessings and privileges these are. Let me ask you, are you a partaker of them? You know, that's only possible when we repent of our sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And I ask you today, have you done that? If not, then none of these things that I have described are yours. You're still dead in your sins. You're still an outcast, cut off from God and the promises of God and eternal life. 
But if you have repented, if you have believed that these things are yours, Christ has loved you, he has washed you, he has made you a king and a priest to God his Father. Now since that's so, should you not also live like that? Did Christ love you? Does he not love you still? Then you must live that way by loving him in return with all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your soul, and all of your strength, and your neighbor as yourself, as he himself commands. Nor must you ever doubt his love. He says he loved you. Believe it. Even when you feel distant from him, and your faith is weak, and your sins appear so great, and the devil is so strong, it's especially at these times that you need to believe that he loves you. Did Christ wash away all of your sins? Then forsake sin, flee from it, pursue after righteousness and holiness with all of your might through the power of the Holy Spirit. And stop dwelling on your sins of the past. They're washed away by the blood of Christ. So completely, in fact, as we said earlier, that God doesn't see them anymore. Did Christ make you a king? Then go forth to conquer the devil, the world, and your own sinful nature. Did Christ make you a priest? Then pray fervently. Never cease praying for yourselves, for your loved ones, for your fellow believers, and for the world. And live every moment of every day to the glory and praise of his name. Oh, you see, the point is, if Christ has done these things for us, then we need to live that out in our lives and if we don't do that, it's a sign we're not truly converted to God. And so this doxology of our text is supremely fitting in light of all that Christ has done for us. But it's also justly unending. And that brings us to our second point. Having mentioned some aspects of what Christ has done for his people, John breaks out in praise and adoration. He writes to him, he's talking about Christ now, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Now you notice this is not so much a wish or a prayer as it is a command. John here is commanding all creatures to give glory and dominion to Christ. Now what is glory? Well the Greek word for glory is doxa from which we get that English word doxology. The word glory can have a broad range of meaning. It normally refers to the shining light that accompanies the presence of God. For example, the Shekinah glory of God that rested on the tabernacle and later on the temple of Solomon. In this context, however, the word glory means honor. And the word dominion means power or might. It's like one writer states, it is the right and authority to dispose of all things according to his own pleasure. And so John here commands all creatures to give Christ glory and to submit to his lordship and to do this forever and ever, meaning to all eternity. Why to all eternity? Because it will take that long to justly praise and glorify his name for all that he is and all that he has done for sinners like us. And so we're reminded here that doxology... Praise to God should be a regular part of our lives. Is that true in your life? Do you regularly, like John, break forth in doxological praise to Christ our King? Do you ever stop 
perhaps when you're out enjoying a beautiful sunset or some other beautiful scene from nature, or after hearing a sermon that so powerfully proclaimed the truth of God's word, do you ever stop to praise and to magnify God right where you are? This is a mark of a true saint of God. Earlier I mentioned that the book of Revelation contains several doxologies, seven to be exact. And what's interesting is that each of these doxologies are more or less spontaneous. Just as a scene is unfolding and God is manifesting his power on the earth, the saints in heaven break forth in spontaneous doxology to God. I wonder if you ever do the same. Do you ever break forth spontaneously in praise and adoration to God? The Puritan Thomas Manton writes this. He says, It's a thing to be reproved in Christians that we take so little time to admire, honor, and praise our Redeemer which yet is a great part of our work. Surely if you had a due sight of his excellency or a sense and taste of the riches of his goodness and love, you would be more in this delightful work. You see what he's saying? He's saying that breaking forth in doxology to Christ should be a regular feature of our lives. In fact, this is the very essence of worship, isn't it? The essence of worship is not dressing up in our Sunday best and sitting comfortably in our pew and listening politely to the sermon, offering our gifts and singing at the appropriate time. These things are important, of course, but they're not the essence of worship. The essence of worship is doxology. It is praising God for who he is and what he has done. And it goes on forever and ever and ever to all eternity. Oh, is that how you worship God, my friend? We've considered this morning John's doxology to Christ. We've seen that it's greatly deserved and it is justly unending. But there's one more word in our text that deserves some comment, and it's the very last word. And with this I close. Having called on all the creatures of the earth to give glory and dominion to Christ forever and ever, John adds this word, Amen. Now, Amen means it shall certainly be. It's like putting an exclamation mark behind an important statement. By using that word, John is saying, whatever else may happen, let this not fail. Let Christ receive all glory and dominion forever and ever, because he is so worthy of it. My friends, is that also your wish and your prayer? Dear believer, having been reminded today of all that Christ has done for you, is it your heart's desire that all creatures glorify Christ and submit to his lordship? Can you say amen to that? Oh, let these words be our song to all eternity. To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Dear friends, it's our great joy to be able to preach to you the Word of God every Sunday on this station. If you are blessed by or have a comment on the message you've heard today, we'd very much appreciate hearing from you. Please take the time to write us a short note. Our mailing address is Banner of Truth, 3386 Mount Lehman Road. And Lehman is spelled L-E-H-M-A-N, and that's in Abbotsford, British Columbia, v 4 x 2M9. Or you can email us at banneroftruth at frcna.org. That's banneroftruth at frcna.org.
dot org and please indicate the call letters of this station. If you take the time to write to us, we'll gladly send you, free of charge, a wonderful booklet entitled Faith of Our Fathers. In this booklet, Pastor Neil Pronk, the former radio pastor of this program, explains the so-called doctrines of grace, otherwise known as the five points of Calvinism. We hope that it may be a rich blessing to you and yours. Please note that we do not send out CDs of our radio messages, but if you have access to the internet, you can download all of our messages at any time from our website at banneroftruthradio.com. That's banneroftruthradio.com. Support for this program is provided by the Free Reformed Churches of North America. For more information about our churches, including where you can find a church nearest you, please visit our denominational website at www. Dot F-R-C-N-A dot org. Thank you for listening, and now until next week, may the Lord be with you all.